This is the Pain Matters podcast hosted by Master Sessions. My name is Bart van Buchem. I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist. And Lormer, this is your podcast. So uh, welcome back to your own podcast again. <laughs> Thanks, Bart. Uh, yeah, it's weird to say that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Nice to see you, Bart. Yeah, likewise, likewise. It's been a, it's a little while ago. We had a little break. We had a few lovely recordings. We've had... Um, a lot of response on the call for questions, um, uh -huh. which you can still send in through uh, mail at mastersessions.academy. So feel free to to run any questions uh, with us because we are really happy to take these. And um, as these questions were so overwhelming, we just, just decided before heading to no plastic pain as we sort of introduced before or announced before we, we decided to take some of these questions because they sort of nicely warms up for no plastic yeah. pain um uh, we and just we, if i can jump in but just for anyone who is listening who doesn't know what no plastic pain is uh, we're really talking about what the punters what everyday people call pain system hypersensitivity we'll come back to that for sure for sure. So um, the, the call for questions was as open as we could <laughs> get. And, and that allowed people to um, just have a, have a go with um, their first initial thoughts. And um, I think it was introduced in a way, if you were stuck with Lorimer in an elevator, what would your question be? Is that um, what you said? <laughs> that's what oh, we done. And I hope are... it wouldn't be about bodily functions or anything. <laughs> I reckon that so there were some people who were like, oh, I would love to happen that that would happen. And um and but it's a nice idea. It it did provoke some questions and uh -huh. some critical questions as well. So let, let's start with with um Jerry. He's um he's a PT, uh, Jerry McCullough, and um, he referred to an explained pain course he did before uh, a couple of years ago, and he really loved it, the theory and the practice. However, now it comes. However, however, okay. some of our chronic pain patients don't want any part of it. They tend to be stuck in the expectation that something can be fixed. My hip is out of place, or something like mm -hmm. that. Any advice for helping that patient that doesn't buy into pain education at all, or yeah. maybe just broadly not interested in even thinking yeah. or talking about pain mechanisms yeah. or problems, just fix me. Yeah, put my put my hip back in, or yeah. my, my back back in, or oh, uh, Jerry, was it um, Jerry? The ver this is this is the sort of question that I get the most often and i guess it's the sort of question that has been driving us to to i guess to answer it to solve to solve the problem because you're not alone i guess that's the first thing i'd like to say jerry that you're not the only one who uh gets gets frustrated in those situations um and you know i i experience those situations and i'm sure you do too but um <clears throat> i guess what 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 we have learned that's really relevant to that question of yours, Jerry, is is that the uh, the type of education that we do needs to be better than it has been for a long time. And what I mean by that is that we start integrating 
some of the other skill sets that are freely out there and have been worked upon, like motivational interviewing, um, for example. Uh, and we we look to our uh, our colleagues and experts in education because they get uh, they get students. So education often tries to find what what are the ways we can reach the hard to reach students, the students who don't want to learn in the class, and they have a lot of uh, a, a way more sophisticated, I guess, also nuanced, but also practiced approach to education and conceptual change. So uh, we've also been taken on that journey by those legends of of those fields. Um, and I guess it's worth, I don't know if, if I'm going too far off topic here, but, but uh, I've been having to, well, I've, I've wanted to, I've been giving talks lately on pain education because the the argument for pain education, which we touched on in one of the first sessions, is is becoming more and more compelling uh, with meta-analyses and network meta-analyses. Um, uh, and when I've talked about that, I've divided the history of pain education into three chunks. And the first chunk is sort of prior to 2000. And that really focused on education about the body part, anatomy and physiology and how to minimize forces like lifting techniques and sitting posture and standing posture and uh, different ways of walking and all that sort of education about uh, probably minimizing load on structure and uh, promoting what was seen to be optimal biomechanics, that sort of stuff. And uh, that sort of pain education I would describe as as ancient pain education. And then about in the year 2000, we transferred over into a different kind of education, which broadly became known as pain neuroscience education or explaining pain, uh, a really didactic version uh, centered around the book Explain Pain and the course that uh, Jerry did, I imagine, uh, and I would call that, and that that was sort of dominant from about 2000 till about six or seven years ago, and I would call that old school pain education. And there are now 78 randomized controlled trials of old school pain education, uh, comparing it to all sorts of things, including you know really well-planned sham educations to really empathic Rogerian counseling approaches uh, to conventional back school. So comparing it to ancient pain education um, or comparing it to, you know, waiting lists or guideline care. So all sorts of comparisons in those 78 randomized controlled trials. Uh, and what became obvious during that period of time is, is even though we were getting better outcomes. So I'd say ancient pain education is, is probably bad for people. So it's not, it's not even useless. It's worse than useless. According to the evidence that, Old school pain education is on average good for people, but we're still getting all these situations like Jerry has described. And that has been part of triggering us to, to bring us into a new phase, which, which is what I'm calling modern pain education. So we've got ancient, old school and modern. And the pedal collaboration that I might have mentioned, pain education team of absolute legends, uh, decided that we should call modern pain education pain science education. And I think I've spoken about that on this podcast. So to to respond to your question, Jerry, I think we we can be way more skilled at slowly releasing the truth as far as what we understand the scientific perspectives on pain to be. So 
rather than we go in for a lecture or we we hit people hard with the essential pain facts and what we're wanting to conjure is an environment and a and a, a thirst and enthusiasm to learn and that might be really difficult to conjure in someone who is convinced that their hip is out and that's where i think drawing on uh the the clinical skills like motivational interviewing like reflective listening like pointing out uh disconnects between uh different aspects of someone's understanding uh or the the competing sides of their current understanding um so in a situation like that you you might want to understand on what grounds this person thinks his his hip is out and whether this person can also volunteer evidence against that being the conclusion but i think something that we can all do uh both uh, you know in our practice and in our clinical life but also as a community is to start making education mainstream that we put it back on the table and, and it wasn't that long ago where uh, health education was actually promoted within general practice uh, different types of education and it might have been called advice uh, but we now understand way more about it uh, and we make education mainstream because the evidence and the clinical guidelines and the calls to action all say that's where it should be so that's where we can have if we can get access to a wider range of of resources that are giving the same kind of messages and this fellow of yours jerry might see on the wall in the clinic some statement about the revolutionary impact of of re-understanding the problem or uh there's many factors in chronic pain or for you you might you might find resources somewhere or work with someone like our group to build them with things saying you know why you can't put your hip out as a big poster on the wall it's nothing about this fellow but it's starting to give the messaging uh that promotes a different way of thinking about the problem and i think we are all in this together uh to to push our entire community towards a better way of understanding things but to go back to your question jerry i think uh the core attributes here for us should always be respect uh empathy uh, understanding why this fellow thinks that and then slowly guiding him towards seeking out a, a more contemporary idea of of how his pain works a little bit ambiguous what do you think Bart? do you think i've i've been too not prescriptive enough on that join us in york united kingdom on the 14th I think it's just that journey you you will start and understanding that it's not telling people what's right or wrong I, I reckon that it's it's a conversation you start it's and I, I like the um 
you mentioned enthusiasm in a way and mm-hmm. curiosity in a way so that's my my um understanding of it which i feel creating a context that allows people to be curious about what's what's there what's around yeah. what's the knowledge not and not be too let's say um old school back to school stuff then they said the teacher tells you this is right um, yeah. and we're not in that world anymore <laughs> that we take that on board and maybe and i was always thought that would it could it have been that called school education just telling people what's right and wrong 20 years ago was pretty good was that or it could be better and today's yeah. world it's not that good anymore because we've learned skills that uh, as a society to be more let's say um not taking everything for granted <laughs> we're not yeah. trusting politicians and researchers sure. For, sure, for sure so um maybe that's um yeah i reckon that, that that's a, uh, obviously that's a question something that i question myself a lot mm. am i the authority yeah probably yeah. not <laughs> i think i think also that the uh, there's no there's no evidence that the effect size of old school education is waning out there in the randomized controlled trials but i think any trial well, certainly in our group that was started after 2017 it, it hasn't been published yet but well there's one that's been published but uh that was really old school pain education that was the resolve trial uh but it's more an ambition to do better than good that i think is driving the changes in our in our pain education offerings uh, but you know this this idea that people do now cross check what they hear from healthcare professionals mm. with, amongst other things, celebrities, influencers. Uh, this makes our job potentially harder. But if we can if we can get contemporary understanding of things a bit more mainstream, then all we need is a few celebrities. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's easier said than done. Anyway, let's go on to another question, Bart. Yeah, yeah I'm going to throw you one at you. We didn't discuss this one, but it just popped up, and I saw this in my uh, window here. It's Dennis. He's from Germany. Um, he's been on both sides, so he's been uh, a lived experience with ongoing back pain and spreading pains, but he also he's very well read. So his references are like, well, unlike many patients, um, right. probably on the level of let's say academia pain yeah, cool. science so he's really cool. into it so he said i do understand every bit <laughs> i really get it but i still right. got pain yeah. so so um he was really keen to understand that and all your views on if you really understand it like deeply as he did yeah. and i can see yeah. he does but he still got this unpredictable as he writes ongoing spreading conditions he's 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 in a bad place right now right, right. so yeah. uh but it, i think it's really interesting right so if i really get it why don't my pain get away yeah uh that's that is a it's a fabulous question from a from someone with deep insight by the sounds of it and that beautiful combination of lived experience and and study um i i don't know I guess is the easiest answer, but I can think of other examples that 
are perplexing uh, of those sorts of things. And we have done uh, little honors experiments. So when we when we describe an experiment as an honors experiment, it's normally an experiment that we don't uh, do all the things that we need to do to push it to publication. So it's not it's like pilot studies, if you like. But um, we were very interested in this very thing uh, some time ago. And the way that that we set about trying to investigate it was to find people who had a good understanding of how back pain works uh, and were uh, answered questionnaires in a way that suggested they were pretty sure, well, they, they were very confident that there was nothing wrong in their back, but they still had pain bending over forward. So it's a, it's a little bit similar, I think, to what you've described in that question, but um, although that question was about understanding, but let's take it another level to to take a, someone with back pain who uh, understands well, is convinced that uh, their their back's not damaged, but they still have back pain bending over forward. There are a, f a few potential contributors to that, but the one we were interested in was, can we understand more about that person's implicit association? So, uh, if anyone's familiar with the implicit association test, you can you can go online and do all these implicit association tasks and they provide stimuli and you have to do a, it's a reaction time task. And the way that you respond to these pairs of stimuli uh, reveals, according to the people who do this research, reveals things that your brain associates more quickly uh, two things that your brain associates more quickly than another two things or another pair of things. So for example, they ask questions on their website, like uh, what are your implicit attitudes towards men in the humanities and women in the sciences? And you, you know, if you're like me, you'll think, well, I don't have any biases about uh, men and women being better suited to one or the other or or more capable at one or the other. And then they do all these pairing and this reaction time task. And if uh, and you might come out with the result that suggests that you actually do implicitly associated associate men with science and women with humanities, for example. So we can use that paradigm to start to get at whether someone implicitly associates bending over forward with danger. And we can do that in, in, in a few different ways. And what we found with this little pilot study was uh, that for the people who got pain bending over forward, even though they said they were convinced that it wasn't, their back wasn't damaged, they still had an implicit association between bending over forward and danger for their back. Uh, whereas the people who uh, were otherwise the same but had no pain bending over forward, they didn't have the implicit association. So we can't we can't overinterpret that, but it speaks a little bit to uh, this this difficulty. I was, I was speaking with a with a patient yesterday morning about the idea of the brain holding models of everything, and it holds models of the body. And in any particular instant, the brain's model of the body will be relevant to whether whether the body is fit for for purpose for the very next nanosecond. The brain's always predicting the future. And part of rehab is to give the brain opportunities to predict that you're not fit for purpose and then get data from the body to say that you are and update your model just a little bit. 
And uh, the, the idea of that way of thinking is acknowledging that there is a lot in the back end of our brain, like what we're aware of and we're convinced of uh, is not, it's not the only uh, thing that's going on. That's an output of the system. Uh, but at the back end, we may very well have neurons that have response profiles uh, and they have all sorts of learning mechanisms, things firing together. And uh, I, I think it was Freud, but Sherrington as well, I think said things that fire together, wire together. And that might happen at very low levels of a nervous system. So uh, one potential explanation for what um, this gentleman is is wondering about is that uh, the system is not is not just not convinced that the body is fit for the purpose in whatever the instant is, and I I still am satisfied that pain occurs when the organism decides it's in a potentially uh, difficult situation and needs to be protected from that situation, and and pain is the feeling in my view that motivates us to avoid that. You know, to stop pushing further or whatever. And you mentioned that in the question there was the unpredictable, uh, you know, and we really, we, we would never expect complete comprehensive understanding of how pain works to prevent pain from being produced. Uh, we would never, we would never predict that. And that would be not very good because we need pain in situations. I mean, I, I, I feel like I have a deeper understanding of pain than I had 20 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, but I still get pain. Uh, in fact, after a while of standing here, my feet start to hurt and it gets a bit annoying. Um, and I, I think I understand pretty well why they hurt. Uh, but the, the key is not, I think is not understanding it. The key is, another level beyond that which is understanding it and the entire system concluding that you don't need to be protected right now and that's the challenging bit and i think that's where we we can embark on a process of retraining not notwithstanding you know not not excluding the reality that there are times when it's very helpful to have pain to be protected from something um yeah does that uh, again yeah, i've totally waffled but what do you think but yeah, it's kind of nice. And it feeds into another question that came from um, Claudetta. She's from Albania. Um, and she's, she refers to an experience that she's been able to manage pains in a, in, a, in a different situation, but now she's had surgery and is questioning, am I more at risk now for chronic pain? Because will my... So here, her, her literal... Um, the sentence will be saying, but will the brain reroute the information and make it believe that it's hurting? Right. Yeah. Interesting question. So um, it's really hard with word selection when we're talking about pain. Yeah, I and I imagine at uh, Albania, I imagine that uh, this person is unlikely to have English as their first language, and it might just be a semantic thing. However, um, the if we talk about hurting as as being painful, then if it's painful, it's painful. You can't sort of have uh, have pain without it being painful, if that makes sense. But sometimes people also use the word hurting for damage, um, and we can have pain without the damage. Uh, but maybe if I've understood the question, but the the key 
the key part of that question is, am I more at risk having had a history of chronic pain, even though I've, it sounds like I've managed my way out of that. Am, do I have elevated risk for chronic pain in it in the next situation after surgery, for example, and the, to the best of my understanding, uh, I think that if you have developed chronic pain, you may very well have had a genetic uh, increased likelihood to develop it. So there is so genes do play a part. The best evidence suggests they play a part, but it's a very small part. But if you've uh, if you've developed chronic pain, that raises the possibility that you've got the genes that increase risk. So. Uh, having chronic pain didn't increase your risk. It just elevated the possibility that your risk was always increased. Uh, and then the other aspect of this is that from a purely neurophysiological or neuroimmunological perspective, uh, the systems that cause pain system hypersensitivity uh, do, uh, do remain more sensitive, even though you might, your brain might be not producing pain. So you're not, you're not having pain, but it's quite possible that those neurons are ready to go, more easily ready to go. A, a more accessible example of that might be someone who has a, a, a cruciate, a knee cruciate ligament rupture, um, has a reconstruction, has a, a long rehab period. So they have chronic, uh, chronic knee pain and they slowly uh, get through that and recover. If they have a minor knee injury later, it will feel like a major injury. So that's not so much about risk, but it's about sensitivity of the system. And there's good evidence to my understanding is there's good evidence to support that, that uh, previous injuries will, will result in uh, a system ready to go, ready to protect that body part. This surgery, if it's in a different part of the body, will be less overprotected by that but there are common systems so it will probably be slightly elevated uh, in its protective nature but what's really important with that question is the other side of it and that is this person's skill set and understanding that has led them to manage a previous condition so all of the skills and understanding uh, and insight that one develops during a recovery from chronic pain one always has that understanding and insight. And, and that's not just at a conscious level, it's throughout the system. So embedded in this person's system is a re resilience and a increased likelihood of recovery. So any of the uh, uh, increased likelihood of, of chronic pain could well be offset and actually cancelled out and maybe even over, uh, over cancelled by the increased capacity for recovery. So uh, I want to give those, those two types of answers to that. And, and the one is, yeah, there are genetic risk is probably higher um, than, than some other people. The fact that you've had chronic pain means there are neuroimmune networks that are, are going to be more sensitive to firing. So things will probably feel a bit worse for you than they would have felt before you had chronic pain a while ago. But the third thing, which is really important, is that you've got the skills, insight, understanding, strategies to promote recovery now. That's, I think that will be very helpful. I, I like the, the resilience bit here where if you have overcome it before, 
you mm. apparently also got a genetic uh, set point for for recovery you know yeah it's, quite uh, possibly uh, yeah possibly. So i mean that yeah. that idea of resilience but i i even think that undersells what those sort of experiences present for people they uh, there's a concept called anti-fragility it's a fellow i can't remember his name he's written a book he's an economist with that title but i you know i've been a fan of that concept for decades uh the idea that the system when it adapts to to recover for example it doesn't just adapt to be the same as it was it adapts to be better than it was so resilience is halfway there sort of resilience implies okay you can cope with the same load again but actually you can cope with a bigger load you it's it's moving the opposite direction to fragility yeah that, that that's such a unseen areas still i think within resilience the mm. understanding of resilience it probably would be a nice podcast episode <laughs> to go yeah through. yeah let's um, write that down yeah, yeah, resilience and anti-fragility. Now we can get Brendan Mowat on to talk about that. He does great stuff on that. That's uh, great. So yeah, and there's some other people as well. For sure, we we yeah plenty to do. So, so we got cool. one more question from yeah. Christine. Uh, she I'm not sure where she's coming from. Uh, she she's quite um, she has a quite strong point on 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 education and the claims that whether it's useful um, working or the effects or not in randomized clinical trials that has been published over the last decade at least um she's bringing up the point of that if empathetic support alone is also have an effect that seems right. we don't know we don't have a um an empathetic um randomized clinical trial done uh, uh, how how can yeah. you say that that pain education is still um still good enough or at least it's a worthwhile and she's also referring yeah. to gaslighting for example she feels probably you know that's my interpretation of her question that she feels uncomfortable with pain education maybe in old school um uh -huh. to to present her patients as she doesn't know there is, is it just about empathy or not or is it more right. than just the, the the content as well yeah cool so there's a couple of questions in there um uh the the first one is uh is easy to to respond to because there there are randomized controlled trials that compare uh old school pain education in fact some of the first randomized controlled trials compared old school uh pain education to uh as identical as it could be pain education about ancient content if you like back school uh and uh, included in those early trials were measures of empathy um measures of enthusiasm uh attention given to me by my therapist uh so a lot of those sort of therapeutic alliance stuff how cared for was i and they were the same between the two groups but the pain education group did better on clinical markers um pain disability and catastrophizing and self-efficacy and those sorts of things over the following 20 years um as I said, the 78 randomized controlled trials now comparing to a range of different things. And and uh, I think you said, Christine, uh, Christine's right in observing that there's not many of those trials that compare to just empathic support, if, they, if I understood what you said there, Bart. Yeah. Uh, 
however, some of them uh, try try very hard to have in the control group equivalent therapeutic alliance, equivalent exposure to clinicians. Uh, some of them that I've been involved with go to great lengths to match uh, all the non-specific effects that we can match. Uh, and then we measure them uh, and we ask people, so how how empathic was your clinician? And uh, I'm, I'm very satisfied that uh, old school pain education is more helpful than uh, empathic support on the basis of evidence. Um, that said, ideally, we should be full of empathy uh, and full of respect and uh, collaborative intent. Uh, so I don't think it's one or the other. It points to a really important question, Bart, that uh, is coming up a lot at the moment uh, with respect to clinical trials that are coming out. And that is, it, it's it's really important to ask the question when you see a positive effect size or a positive effect, anything's reported as you know treatment, you know, Bart's amazing treatment for chronic pain uh, was effective. And they give you an effect size for that. Uh, it's really important to ask a question compared to what, like what was the control? And, that, and Christine's point might might be along those lines. Like it's one thing to show a treatment is better than guideline care or better than usual care or better than doing nothing or better than uh, giving an injection that is, is an open placebo or whatever. It's another thing to prove or to find an effect compared to uh, another active treatment or compared to a treatment that's trying to match all those things. And it's very topical at the moment because uh, our team uh, published a paper called the on the Resolve trial, uh, which compared the, the treatment grounded in old school pain education um, to a sham treatment, a placebo treatment, where we tried really hard to match empathy, attention, time, enthusiasm, excitement, novelty, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and that, that came out with a positive result. And that's that's unheard of in chronic back pain research. Uh, the other the other part of that question, if I remember correctly, you mentioned uh, gaslighting. And I think you were referring to the possibility that pain education is gaslighting patients. Um, am I, have I understood that um, correctly? Well, I reckon, yeah, so that's my interpretation of her question. Sure. So, so, but I, I can I see where she comes from. I, I can see that that, and I could understand that feeling. Uh, yeah. If she's yeah, I think that. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that that's similar to, in a way, uh, the challenge that Jerry Jerry's question pointed to, and that is how do we how do we help people understand contemporary ideas of how pain works without giving them any glimpse of Rene Descartes or that we don't believe them. And maybe that's where the potential sort of gaslighting implication comes in that, uh, you know, for example, uh, anyone interpreting, oh, well, you're, you're saying I have pain because I choose to have pain or uh, because I just think I do when I don't. And for me, those sort of uh, responses tell me that, well, we haven't successfully uh, promoted learning of new concepts there um where we're, we're clumsily educated and we need to be better at that and and i think often we need to self-reflect on so how could i how could i do that better this person has 
got a totally different message from the message I was trying to send and what resources are available for me to do better for them to access uh, who are my colleagues who we could role play that and and normally if a patient responds like that your colleague will understand why they did and you can workshop it uh, although I mean for the psychologists listening this is a no-brainer getting peer supervision and talking through the things that worked and didn't but for non-psychologists this idea of peer supervision or mentoring or running you know role plays is a bit more foreign but it's really really helpful yeah that, that, that's uh, from my own experience that's true yes yeah. um we got one question we're not gonna i'm just gonna leave it with uh, our listeners so we okay. can come back on that if that's all right um yeah so we're not gonna answer it but um we've got this very interesting person and we're not gonna uh, we're not gonna tell you who it is but how uh, can the idea of central sensitization or maybe even nosoplastic pain explain all the psychosocial influence on pain because they certainly not happening in the spinal cord wow great question great question okay we'll come back to that yep and it's been um, great to see you but yeah absolutely it was lovely um we're gonna wrap this up thank you for listening um another episode everyone about nosoplastic pain and we're gonna follow up on that thank you for listening see you next time Ciao. ciao thanks bart ciao starts here.